0: You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, find ourselves in the first four verses this morning. Last week, we basically did two things in Romans chapter 10. The first, we introduced the chapter. We did that by uh, reminding ourselves that chapter 10 is actually in the the middle of a larger argument, and that is Paul making the case that God's word has not failed, right? Somebody on the the outside could, could look in at this situation and see that the Old Testament promises there that were given to, to Israel that were made to them, and then see the Jewish rejection of that and suggest that God's word had fallen short, that it had failed and it didn't live up to what it said. And Paul is saying uh, that that is not the case. To do this, Paul uh, makes a, a pretty long argument in Romans 9 through 11, and he, and he starts by. Showing that God is absolute sovereign, that God had a plan from the very beginning and he's carrying this out. Or to say it the way Romans 9 does, God's purpose in election might stand. That purpose is to take and put an end to any hero complex that we might have. Some might be tempted to exalt themselves because they have successfully shared the gospel with somebody and they responded to it. and They might make themselves the hero in the story that way as if, we are responsible for that person coming to faith. In fact, I knew in college that there were, there were people that would, that would keep track and have informal context of how many people they could get to, to pray a sinner's prayer and it would be, uh, then it would, it would exalt them and, and point to them as the, the best and the greatest evangelist of the, the day or whatever. One who, who comes to faith might be tempted to, to be the hero in that they responded to the message of the gospel where others didn't, and think that this suggests that God somehow likes them better, thinks more of them than, they do, than he does others, or they might even think that they are smarter or more pious than other people. The doctrine of election, understood correctly, removes all reason to boast, the only one to boast in is in Jesus Christ who through the power of the Holy Spirit draws people to himself and saves them. And then we are left in, in awe and mercy of what has been granted to us. Mercy to those who did not deserve it. Paul said as much when he made reference to himself as the, the chief of all sinners. Paul's point in bringing up the doctrine of election, and God's sovereignty is to highlight that God's purpose from the start was not to save all of the nation of Israel, but a, a remnant. Just as he would not save all Gentiles, this was his plan from the start. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say that true Israel is the remnant of both Jews and Gentiles. It is God's people that he chose to draw to himself, this new people. Peter declares this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says these are a holy priesthood, a chosen people, precious in the sight of God, and then God is building them into a spiritual house acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All people that come to faith in him are his people. This was God's plan from the onset. In Paul shows this by bringing into it quotations from the Old Testament, specifically Hosea and Isaiah, and shows that this was God's plan. Now Paul is turning in the same overall argument. He is speaking of another heading, of, in, under the heading that God's word has not failed in the light of the Jewish rejection of Jesus. But now he's making the point that if, if there are those that reject the Messiah, it is not God's fault. You see, at the point in the, this conversation of God's sovereignty, some could say, this is God's fault. If they, are, if they are left, if they are not chosen, then somehow God is to blame here. And now, starting at the very end of Romans 9, we see a, a transition God is not at fault. So, in, in really in, in chapter 10, then there's a, a transition from God's sovereignty to a focus on human responsibility. And we talked about this transition last week and said that the Bible teaches both of these doctrines God is absolutely sovereign, and we are free agents and responsible for our actions really responsible for our actions. And if anyone is responsible for the ultimate rejection of Jesus, Paul is saying here that it isn't God, it is the Jews who do not believe. Secondly, last week in the book of Romans, we looked at the first verse really in Romans 10 where Paul says that his heart's desire and prayer to God is for the Jews, that they be saved. We noted the similarities here between the opening words of Romans 9 where Paul said his soul was in unceasing anguish over the Jewish people who were rejecting the Messiah. But one thing that is very interesting, really starting in the last verses of Romans 9, is Paul is saying that it isn't God's fault. These people cannot blame God for their own rejection of him. Paul has already listed a great, the great advantages that these Jewish people had at the beginning of Romans 9. And these people that were both hypocrites and people who had treated Paul really poorly. So on one side, the list of every spiritual advantage was given to them. On the other side, they're hypocrites. They treated Paul poorly. They literally whipped and stoned him. But yet Paul didn't write them off. If anyone had reason to write someone else off, it would have been Paul. But yet Paul, he says, my heart's desire and prayer is to God that these, these might be saved. Paul saw himself in, in this whole situation with a, an air of Realism. That these people were lost. They were blinded to the truth. They were blinded to the gospel. Even though many people probably had heard it countless times, they still had, had every spiritual advantage at their disposal. But these people were as Paul was. Spiritually blind, even though they had great zeal for God. The only difference between Paul and the Jews was the mercy of God. Nothing to do with Paul's goodness, nothing to do with Paul's zeal for God, but everything to do with the mercy of God. And Paul recognizes that he has nothing to boast over. He's not better than these. And if these were going to be saved, it would be because God in turn shows them the same mercy that he himself was shown. In other words... All evangelistic efforts must start on our knees in a recognition that if these are going to be saved, it is because God in his sovereignty, and his wisdom, will extend to them the same mercy that he has shown us. Because we realize that left on our own, we deserve only the wrath of God for our willful and scandalous and treasonous lifestyle that exalts the passions of our flesh and the gratifying of our own nature instead of the worship of the one true God we too must see ourselves in the same light Paul did that we are sinners saved by grace and that the mercy of God was extended to us not because of our goodness not because that we have done something good but because of his mercy and his grace alone And the more we see ourselves and those around us this way, the more we won't write anyone off, but we'll even pray and plead with God to save those who, in the case of Paul, even physically beat him. Now we turn to the rest of those verses, the first four verses there. In verse 2, Paul says that these have great zeal for God. In the the last verses of Romans 9, we saw that the Jews were trying to obtain the righteousness of God, but did not. The problem there, note, wasn't, isn't their zeal. For that matter, it wasn't that they were pursuing the wrong thing. But according to Romans 9.32, it's they were pursuing the right thing the wrong way. By works, not by faith. I think that's what Paul is getting at in verse 2. I bear them witness that they have great zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. We're ignorant. They're pursuing him, but do not understand something very fundamental. They're doing it the wrong way. And that is that righteousness before God cannot be achieved by law-keeping. It comes through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. I think at this point, before we go any further, we need to say a word about precision. There there are some things in life that require one to be precise. I'll give you an illustration. It's a stupid illustration, but I think it's one that'll work. You're not going to get very far sewing if you're not precise. You might say, well, I can sew something and not be precise. It might be a sloppy job, but I can sew up a hole or something. But you might be forgetting about threading the needle. Before you can start to sew up a hole, you need to put the thread through the eye of the needle. And the eye of the needle is very small. And either your little piece of thread goes through the eye of the needle, or it doesn't. And it must in order to sew. I think I have pretty good eyesight until I try to do that. It takes precision. Think of doctors doing surgery. There are moments where, if the doctor would just move his scalpel just an an inch or a fraction of an inch in a certain direction, he or she would would cut something very important, and the patient on the table would be done more harm than it does to help, and they might just bleed out there on the table. Accountants keep track of money down to a cent, they must be precise especially since they're probably dealing with somebody else's money. Think of sending a a satellite or a a, a ship into space. These things are are precise or they will not work. I mean, there are a host of things that take a great deal of of precision. And I think most of us in our room can think of things about our our jobs or our life that, that take precision. This is why we go to school. We learn from somebody that knows because we need precision in that area. But the fact is, just like many other spheres of life, one doesn't make much progress learning about God without precision. God is the source of all precision. He himself is precise. I bring this up because it comes into play in our text. Here we see the word righteousness. Actually, we see it it twice in verse three alone and, and many times throughout the book. Donald Barnhouse, in his commentary on the book of Romans, points to the the precision that must be taken when we come to the word when he says this, quote, the issues of life and death of time and eternity hang upon a proper understanding of the righteousness of God and our relationship to it. Now one might say, well, let's just just understand it correctly and move on. But there's difficulty here. And that's really brought out in verse 3 we see that there are two kinds of righteousness, ours and God's. Do you see that there? And as James Boyce says, quote, the basic spiritual failure of humans is that they are so pleased with their own righteousness that they will not have the righteousness of God, which they need if they are to be saved from sin. It is precisely at this point. Notice how he used the word precisely. At this point that the Jews needed precision. When Paul says that their zeal was not based on knowledge, it was in their zeal that they had for God, but they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They were so busy pursuing their own righteousness, trying to earn this right standing, this right place in front of God and and earning his approval that they missed the righteousness of God. Since this word is so important here, and it's obvious that Paul is contrasting two kinds of righteousness, it's crucial that we take a look at the word specifically in the book of Romans. Just point out how crucial the word is. I mean, we must admit that we cannot understand the Bible without understanding what it teaches in regard to righteousness. In the book of Romans, we see the word righteousness 33 times. Compare that to seven times in Matthew and in 2 Corinthians, the two books in the New Testament that come right behind Romans in the number of times they use the word. I mean, sure, there's, there's books that don't use the word, but that doesn't mean that the meaning isn't important in understanding them. Now between Romans 9.30 and 10.6, we find the word eight times there alone. The word righteousness isn't just a New Testament word. It's found in the Old Testament as well. It's linked with the name of God hundreds of times, the righteousness of God. Leon Morris in his commentary points out that With us, the word righteousness has an ethical value. That is, if somebody is righteous or has righteousness, that means that their behavior is acceptable to God. It was a word connected with right behavior. That's ethics. But Morris goes on to point out that with the ancient Hebrews, so in the the Old Testament, the word was first and foremost speaking of, of a legal standing. So like a a court's declaration. So to put it this way, God is righteous. So our righteousness then would be that in which enables us to stand before him. Does that make sense? God is righteous. So our righteousness then would be that goodness in us that enables us to stand before him. It puts it into a different perspective, right? It's not just some goodness It's the goodness in us that enables us to stand before God. Leon Morris says it this way, quote, The man who is ultimately righteous is the one who is acquitted when tried at the bar of God's justice. Think about that for a moment. The one who is righteous is the one who is acquitted when his life is put up against the righteous standard of God himself. When he's tried at the bar of God's righteousness, God's justice. So the question then becomes, who is righteous? Let me just quote Jesus here. I've quoted a lot of other people. Let me just quote Jesus here to help us answer that question. Matthew 5.48 Matthew in, in summing up, this is the, this is the, the Sermon on the Mount, right? In, in summing up the previous teaching in the chapter, Jesus says this, you therefore, so based on everything he's already said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's hard to do any hermeneutical gymnastics with that. It's kind of got to mean what it says, right? Right? If the standard of is God's righteousness, and then for you to be righteous and stand before Him and pass muster, then you must be perfect as He is perfect. Is this falling into place? I mean, that's the standard. So let me ask you again, who is righteous? You see the problem? There, there are two categories here. There is our righteousness, and there's God's righteousness. And the problem is that our righteousness can never measure up to God's. These things are worlds apart. God's righteousness is his very nature. What we mean by saying that is God is righteous, just as God is love or God is holy. In fact, God's righteousness is associated with his holiness. It sets God apart. It makes him unlike us. Human righteousness, on the other hand, is A social quality gained when one avoids certain sins on one hand and isn't involved in them, usually outward forms of human depravity, human unrighteousness, and it's also seen in a positive light. So they're avoiding sins on one side, and then when one takes part in certain good things, they're seen as righteous. I mean, I hope you're starting to see the problem. If you haven't, human righteousness is in a completely different category than God's righteousness There are many that work their their tails off to accumulate human righteousness. They constantly avoid evil. They perform good deeds. They do these things. And these things, in and of themselves, they're not bad things. But we must realize they'll never add up to what God requires of us. According to Jesus, to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Luke 10 You associate Luke 10 with the parable of the Good Samaritan. It starts with an expert in the law coming and asking Jesus, what must he do to gain eternal life? Jesus answers the expert in the law, well, what's in the law? So the expert in the law then summarizes the law by saying, well, the law says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. In other words, Jesus is telling the expert in the law exactly what the law says. And that is to obtain eternal life, to stand before God with his approval, one must love God and love neighbor perfectly. Now, does the law then highlight self righteousness or God's righteousness? In a way, self righteousness, doesn't it? It says, You do this and you will live. You keep these commandments perfectly, you will live. If you want eternal life, then you love God and you love your neighbor perfectly. You do that, you have eternal life. But it is at that point that we see the problem, don't we? And it's a glaring problem, like a spotlight. You cannot do that, it's impossible. Let me ask you a question. Why in the world would Jesus say these things? In Matthew 5.48 and Luke 10, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's pointing toward self-righteousness. You heard it said that you shouldn't murder, but then Jesus puts even a finer tip on that and says that if anyone who is angry with his brother is guilty and liable of judgment. Jesus goes on, speaks of adultery and lust and says, The law says that if you commit adultery, you are guilty. And Jesus puts a fine tip on that and says that the law says that, but actually if you lust after another person, you've already committed adultery with them in your heart. Jesus is getting at the point. What matters is not only outward actions, namely murder and adultery, but what's going on in one's heart. My point is that it might be one thing for most of us in the room to say that we've never committed murder and we never have committed adultery. We've never done that. And that could be a a cause of celebration. We could point to our own self-righteousness and highlight that and say, you know, we've done pretty good on this. But What Jesus is getting at is the heart and the law and says in essence, there is absolutely no cause for celebration here because adultery is something that goes on in one's heart long before they ever commit the act. Just as murder is rooted in anger and hatred, something that exists in the heart before murder has ever entered the picture. Do you see there's two kinds of righteousness? There's ours, it has these momentary celebrations. When we read the Ten Commandments and say, you know, I've done pretty good here, done pretty good here, done pretty good here. And Jesus is saying, wait a minute. You've obliterated all of them. (laughs) My righteousness and your righteousness are worlds apart. And the only thing you're going to get by trying to earn more approval is more guilt. Because the more you understand the law, before you understand what it says, the more it's going to highlight your guilt before God and your unrighteousness in the light of God. The law, and we've said this before, says do this and live. Contrast this to the gospel that says you will live because Christ Jesus accomplished what you cannot. In Romans 10, Paul says that these have a zeal for God. In other words, they are pursuing this righteousness before God through law-keeping, which is in essence saying that ultimately God will be okay with them. That they'll be justified before God by law-keeping. But don't miss that there's no comparison between our own righteousness and the righteousness of God. Let me just give you an illustration, and this is probably... Worse than the other one I gave. But it helps me. Desiree was playing the piano a little bit ago. And we're all accustomed to hearing a, a piano. In fact, we all know what a piano sounds like. We can think in our heads of, of a piano playing a tune. I mean, when we hear a piano, we know what it is, right? I mean, I could probably take anyone in this room, blindfold you, Play three different instruments, and you can pick out the piano. You know what it sounds like. Now, just say that we're having a music committee meeting, and in that music committee meeting, somebody is talking about a certain song, and to make their point, they're, they kind of imitate what a, a piano sounds like with their mouth, right? They, they attempt that. Now, I know what a piano is supposed to sound like in my head, so I say, eh, I don't don't think that sounded exactly what a piano is supposed to sound like. This is what a piano sounds like. And I go to, and I imitate it. And then Katie chimes in and says, wait a minute, Pastor. Uh, You did a pretty good job, but this is what a piano sounds like. I'm sure that Katie's impression of a piano was way better than mine, but it would be nowhere near the sound of a real piano. One wouldn't confuse them. If you were blindfolded and Desiree played something on a real piano and Katie did her best impression of a piano, you you would pick out which one was what. This is how it is with the righteousness of God. His standard found in the law is like the perfect sound of a piano and our best effort at imitating it just falls flat. I was talking to a, a pastor the other day. In fact, we were interviewing him for the, the podcast, and he said that if that it was when he was preparing to, to come on the show, he was just thinking about what, what would he talk about if he just had an open forum to talk about anything that he that he wanted to. And he said that that he thought that he would talk about the, what he thought was the greatest threat in the church today, and that would be the issue of law and gospel. And that is exactly what we were going to talk to him about. But in other words, one of the greatest problems, if not the greatest problem in the church today, is the muddling of law and gospel. And the reason for that is that we do not understand accurately the difference between our righteousness and God's. On one hand, that sounds like a simple distinction to make. But as Charles Spurgeon noted, for instance, that if we could really grasp this, if we really got our minds around the law and the gospel distinction, then we should have our master divinity degree. This ignorance of the righteousness of God amongst a people with great zeal for God isn't limited to Jews in the Old and New Testaments. We have this tendency as well. Let me just see if I can illustrate this by saying this. Those who fail to see the distinction between God's righteousness and our own become satisfied with their own righteousness. Think about that statement. Those that fail to see the distinction between our righteousness and God's righteousness become satisfied with their own. I mean, we all know those who are non-Christians, but yet think they're pretty good people and that God in his mercy isn't going to turn away somebody who is a pretty good person, right? Because they're comparing themselves to other people. Yes, this person fails to see the distinction that we've been talking about here, that our self-righteousness, our best efforts are never live up to his. They don't, they don't. They misunderstand that. We often fall into this trap too more often than we would like to admit. Just honestly think about this question for a moment. How long has it been since you've been satisfied with your self-righteousness? For me? Probably less than a couple minutes, to be honest with you. I mean, preachers often, on one hand, urge those under their care to, to go to the cross, Everything's about the cross. Salvation is in Christ alone. But on the other hand, we turn and say something like, if you want God to be pleased with you, or we say it a different way. We say it like this. If you want your life to be pleasing to God in this area or that area, then you must do this or that. My friends wasn't that exactly the confusion that Paul is talking about in these verses? That they were trying to earn God's approval by faithfulness to the law? Do you want a marriage that really honors God? Then do five things. Do these five things. If you get these five things down in your life, then your marriage will honor God. How is that not muddling law and gospel? It's in some sense saying that God will be more pleased with you because of your your faithfulness. Remember the illustration of the piano sounds. The fact is no matter how much we do these things in our marriages or in our devotional time or whatever it is you fill in the blank... Whenever we say that we must do something to please God, we must remember that even our best efforts to mimic the righteousness of God fail. The only righteousness that pleases God, pleases Him, is His own. And our attempt to achieve that standard will always fall short. Just as my imitation of a piano doesn't sound like a piano. You can't apply enough dues in your marriage to please God because His standard is perfect. Only the perfect marriage is going to please Him. I'm picking on marriage a little bit, but it could be anything. If you have a problem with lust or coveting or gossip or anger or anything, fill in the blank. Apply these three principles to your life and somehow we think that when we apply these three do's in our life and our anger or our gossip level goes down and we start to see results there, then that our life is more pleasing to God. And I'm saying no. What's happening is that you're just more satisfied with your own self-righteousness. There's a sense in which we are thinking that if only we could do more, then God would be more happy with us. When Paul says here in verse 3 that these were ignorant of the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, this is what we do. We're naturally inclined to. We fight not to be satisfied with our own self-righteousness And when we are satisfied with our own self-righteousness, we in turn do not submit to God's. I mean, it's a double-edged sword. The more we try and earn God's approval and favor by works, the more we fall short and the more we actually rebel against Him. And that's where verse 4 is so amazing. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let me make something abundantly clear, kind of a parenthetical statement. I don't want anybody to be confused and suggest that the pastor thinks that the, the law is a bad thing. It isn't. It's God's standard of perfect righteousness. It's what the, God desires of us. In the New City Catechism that we're learning this week, it talks about the law as being a good thing. The law is good. We should be able to say with the psalmist, I love your law. Having said that, we must admit that Christ Jesus is the only one that found favor with God through obedience to the law. The law isn't good in that we find favor with God through obedience to it. We find favor with God through faith in Jesus Christ and His obedience on our behalf to the law. John Calvin said it this way. He, he's saying, the person shows that he's a false interpreter of the law who seeks to be justified by his own works. In other words, the person that is, the person who seeks to be justified or declared right before God by his own works doesn't grasp the law. And he goes on. He says, because the law had been given for this end. Now he's saying, here's the reason that the law was given. To lead us as by the hand to another righteousness. So away from our own to another righteousness. Nay, whatever the law teaches, whatever it commands, whatever it promises, has always a reference to Christ as its main object. And hence, all its parts ought to be applied to him. But this cannot be done except we, being stripped of our righteousness and confronted with the knowledge of our sin, seek a gratuitous righteousness from him alone. In other words, the law points out we cannot do it. You cannot have a perfect devotional life by keeping the law. You don't earn God's approval in your Christian walk by dues. You do it by trusting in Christ. When it comes to being accepted and righteous and declared right before God, there's nothing you can do to earn that, to get that. It's already been done in Christ. And here Calvin is is saying rightly that the law seen rightly must strip us of our own self-righteousness. And we must see that in ourselves we cannot do this. And it must lead us to seek Christ and point us to what Luther called an alien righteousness. A righteousness from outside ourselves. His perfect obedience before God given or imputed to us. Therefore, the law always pushes us to a dependence on Jesus Christ. And when we start to grasp this and see the distinction between our righteousness and the righteousness of God, we see the need for the latter. Our only hope is the righteousness of God given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only righteousness that we'll do, and it comes through faith in Jesus alone. I think the question before each of us is, where do we get caught up in being satisfied with our own self-righteousness? Where do we think that, that, that we can be good enough so that God is going to be pleased with us? That we're faithful enough for, for God to be pleased with us? Where are we, we trying to earn God's approval in your life? Where do you think, I'm not good enough, so I just got to work harder at this? Our faithfulness isn't enough. Even our, even our best attempts at law-keeping, always falls short. Prophet Isaiah said they're like a filthy rag. God is only pleased with us in Christ Jesus. He is perfectly pleased with us in Jesus Christ because he was perfectly pleased with the obedience of his son. You want God to be pleased with you? Then believe. Trust in what he has done on your behalf. See that your own righteousness will never pass muster. And the only thing that will work is the righteousness of Jesus Christ who is perfectly obedient. Even to the point of dying on the cross, bearing the weight of God's wrath for sin that you deserve. I mean, just the thought of what Jesus has done for us ought to bring such gratitude to the Christian soul that our response is to turn and say, my heart's desire is to be obedient, to obey. Not out of obligation, not trying to earn God's approval, not trying to win favor with God in in some way, not out of a fear of punishment, but out of gratitude. We constantly go back to the gospel. We constantly recognize our our self-righteousness. and We constantly recognize we cannot do this on our own. We need Jesus Christ and it points us to the cross. To understand the law correctly as Calvin said, it always points us to Jesus Christ. It always points us to what he has done. And then we in turn are so grateful that we say with the psalmist I actually love the law. It's not a burden. I'm not trying to earn God's approval but I want to be obedient. I want to obey it. I want to read it more. I want to know what God desires of me because I want to be obedient to him. I love him because I love what he's done for me. He saved me by his mercy. He took me out of a a slimy pit that I kept crawling up to the top and in my best efforts to get up to the top, I'd get part way up and I'd just slide right back down to the bottom and he lifted me out of that, put me on solid ground. I could never do that on my own. He did that for me. I am pleased. God is pleased with me in Christ Jesus. He can never be more pleased with me. He's called me his son. He's given me an inheritance in him. There's nothing I can do to lose that. And now I'm so grateful that all I want to do is read the Bible and apply it and just live it out because I'm grateful to him. He is my God. He is my master. And I love him. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.